0: So guess what, Mark? This word in your ear is brought to you thanks to NordVPN. And thank goodness you're here to remind me what VPN
1: stands for. I'm something of an expert on the subject. It's virtual private network. I'm confident about that. And what is that? It's a way to keep your
0: data safe on the internet whenever you're logging in, either at home, Mark, either at home or abroad. VPN, which stands for what, Mark? <laughs> Virtual Private Network. <laughs> it, <laughs> it protects your identity and encrypts your data so that nobody can steal that identity. But there's a fun side, Mark. There's a fun side. It's not all. It's not all responsibility. At the same time, it enables you to access the Internet via servers in more than 50 different countries and this means you can often sidestep region restrictions and stream movies in tv programs around the world and while i was waiting for it to get started this morning i was uh, uh, logged in to america to enjoy myself um, looking at the american news channels reminding myself of, of how that nation uh, leads the world in in the development of pile ointments which is always good to be Reminded about and and also to just look at to glory in the details of Donald Trump's um, Donald Trump's boxes that he removed from the White House, many of which were stored in a shower. It's the sheer amount of them, yeah, is, is what really does take your breath away. You know, it's like 35 boxes or something like this, yeah. And he was repeatedly asked to to return them and didn't. And actually, took them first of all to Mar-a-Lago, which is in Florida. And then in the summer, took them to his golf club in New Jersey. Yep. <laughs> you know, these things were transported around the New United States. I think it's going to be very difficult to... Come up with any kind of innocent explanation. And this, for this was one. Uh,
1: documents about the uh, the movements and uh, internal secrets of the army, and <laughs> just that's just breathtaking. Isn't it it sort of, could it have just mattered matter. off in the wind. You know? It wouldn't matter if they were
0: kind of uh, you know reports into how the White House kitchens are run or something. You know, documents that don't matter at all. The very fact of hanging on to them is weird. It's just really odd. And going to to that amount of trouble to hang on to them is doubly weird. Anyway, that's what I've been looking at via NordVPN. So you can take advantage of a deal where you can try NordVPN by going to nordvpn.com slash your ear or just use the code your ear to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan and one additional month for free and a bonus gift. A box of white house secrets it's risk-free because there's a 30-day money back guarantee full details as ever in the show notes below <laughs>
1: You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Well, Dave, I have a stack waddy uh, for you from uh, our from regular listener, Gavin Hogg. And Gavin Hogg says, uh, I was browsing some Fats Waller peas the other day. <laughs> and it occurred to me, as you do, <laughs> God, I love Fats Waller. And it occurred to me that many of his sob- song titles had a distinct flavor of the Mancunian nabob of sob, Mr. Morrissey. <laughs> so eight songs. Let's see if Dave can tell his waller from his wallower. <laughs> All right. five, eight titles. Pent Up in a Penthouse. Is that Waller or Mozart? Pent Up in a Penthouse. It's Waller. Surely. It is Waller, yeah. Slightly less than Wonderful. Waller. It is, absolutely. Brow of My Beloved. That's Morris. This is 100% success so far. The meanest thing you ever did was Kiss Me. Waller. Yep. It's Hard to Talk. Sorry, it's hard to walk tall when you're small. Waller. No, Morrissey. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. Okay. The Curse of an Aching Heart. Uh, Waller. Yes. The Truth About Ruth. Morrissey. Yep. Sweetie Pie. Morrissey. Very good. That's, I always thought that was a bit of a ringer, actually. The Minor Drag. Morrissey. Fats Waller. <laughs> and lastly, kick the bride down the aisle. <laughs> Waller, no, no, Morrissey. so <laughs> good. It is good though. It's a very, very critical performance. It's very you. good, very Gavin. Good, very good, Gavin. Thank you for that. You know, do anybody you know, who has got a Fas- stack, waddy up their sleeve. Do send it in.
0: Fats Waller made a, a record at Abbey Road, didn't he? Just in the you know, in the late 30s, just before the war. And there is a record, they used to have, one of the things that they installed in Abbey Road in the early days, they actually took it out, I think, just after the war, what they felt they had to have in every recording studio was a, a theatre organ, you know. Oh, a yeah. three-installed theatre organ. Because the, the theatre organ was such a mainstay of musical entertainment in, in the 30s, I suppose, you know. It's what people expected. And so they You, talking about the, you
1: mean the cinema organ? Yeah you mean well the thing that yeah. they rose up from the stage with yes yeah, yeah
0: and um and uh they had one of these in Abbey Road and uh, Fats Waller when he made his record in Abbey Road he played it so there is actually an EP i think called Fats Waller at the Abbey Road organ fantastic extraordinary thing Ken Townsend who was the uh, the great um, Boffin of Abbey Road, still with us nowadays in his 80s, when he first started uh, at Abbey Road, I think just after the war, one of his jobs was to go, and they used to go and record Reginald Dixon at the black, at the theatre organ in the Tower Ballroom Blackpool, um, playing, you know, his favourites, which are big popular hits at the time. And, uh, and they used to record him on location, and so Ken remembers being stationed um under the floor kind of thing with Reginald with his microphone at the ready, uh waiting to be raised magnificently into Wonderful. the ballroom, playing as Reg played, Oh, I do like to be a bit of, of like a seaside. Seaside. <laughs> which of course was his, his SIG tune. Sig signature tune. Absolutely. So yes, yeah, so happy memories, happy memories. Um I was listening to last night Shadow Kingdom, the Bob Dylan thing that you and I were talking about the other week. Oh yes, and I was very taken by the fact that he—he'd, he'd, uh, you know, he was doing—he's doing new songs, old songs, whatever. Um, this is a thing he did during lockdown, isn't it? Um, and but the, one of the things that was particularly struck me is he did Queen Jane approximately, which has always been one of my favourite Bob Dylan songs. Came out in 1965 on Highway 61 Revisited, and I thought it was a kind of odd choice to be still doing that song all those years later, because it's a kind of it's a laundry list of complaints about one individual. Oh, it's, it.
1: oh yeah. Now, Didn't now they, when they, all the flower ladies want back what they have, well, learned they, to. I mean, and the, the smell of their that. roses does not remain. It's you start fantastic. at the beginning. It's just incredibly specific. You know,
0: it starts with a great line. It's really great. I mean, how old was he when he wrote this song? About 22 really or something?
1: 21, maybe 22. Okay,
0: there you go. So he hadn't seen much of life, really, you know. No. They always, they always used to say that this song was somehow inspired by Joan Byers. I don't quite know how... Whether that's true, anyway, but but the only line is when your mother sends back all your invitations. What a great line that is! And your and your father to your sister, he explains. So in the first two lines, he's got your mother, yeah, your you've father, got a lot of information, and, and your sister. <laughs> There's a lot of information set up. Uh, your father to your sister, he explains that you're tired of yourself and all of your creations. Will you come see me, Queen Jane? How bitchy is that i know when when it's all gone wrong for you yeah. come am back to me and it gets, I, it gets progressively I, worse because i verse, I'm, t- I'm 21 and i've seen everything life has to yeah. <laughs> offer of you know now when all the flower ladies want back what they have lent you and the smell of their roses do not does not remain and all your children start to resent you Won't you come see me, Queen Jane? I'm 21 years old, Bob Dylan. It's absolutely extraordinary. Now, when all the clowns that you have commissioned have died in battle or in vain, and you're sick of all this repetition, won't you come see me, Queen Jane? And he just goes on.
1: It gets worse. It gets (laughs) worse. I know.
0: When, When all your advisors heave their plastic at your feet to convince you of your pain, Trying to prove that your conclusions should be more drastic when you come see me, Queen Jane.
1: It's absolutely
0: extraordinary.
1: You want to know if that was based on a real person and real events? I mean, well, it can't have been.
0: It's he was just enjoying the feeling getting even with the world, you know. It's a six-stone weakling who suddenly finds himself. There's quite
1: a bit of that in those early songs, isn't it? Yeah. Vagabond yeah. who's standing in your shoes, you know. There's, uh, there's, just, there's just, it's it's, it's levelling the score, isn't it? It Amazing. really is. Yeah. It's extraordinary. It's a brilliant
0: song. And uh, But but the idea that he still, when he put together a set list to do this thing in, whenever he did it a couple of years ago, the idea that he thought, I'll tell you what, we'll do Queen Jane yeah. approximately it is extraordinary. Because, I mean, it's brilliant, but but it's kind of, how do you say it, juvenilia. You know, it's kind of, it's a, it's a callow, youthful song, isn't it, really? You know, you wouldn't have thought a bloke in his 80s would want to do it any longer, you know. But he he clearly does. Absolutely extraordinary.
1: No, it's true. It's mean-spirited, isn't it? But I was, I was thinking that the, the, the 60s was full of those kind of songs. There was something very compelling about them. These boots are made for walking, and you're so vain. Don't you think? Good examples of the other way around, really.
0: Yeah, Women yeah. Having
1: a go at just evening a score against some man who'd wronged them, you know. Yeah. something very exciting and involving about those songs.
0: Now, in a complete contrast, I was also listening to last night, which you must listen to. Ricky Lee Jones has, has a new record out called Pieces of a Treasure, She's made with Russ Eitelman, who was her early producer, and it's just kind of—it's kind of—you wouldn't call them jazz standards; they're just standards. You know, I know we're all a bit tired of that Rod Stewart, the Great American Songbook, yeah, and all yeah. that, all that stuff. But but this is really good, and um, and she does—they—they—they they, they can't take that away from me, and it's all in the game, and so forth. And and she also sings all the way, and. Uh, you and I, yesterday afternoon, uh, uh, before we did the quiz, as we normally do on Friday night, we had we had a long conversation. don't We, we, we talking about an hour on
1: Zoom things. talking about we're the t- complexities of family lives. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not our families, not the
0: families no, it's other families. No, other families. And we were talking about love and marriage and all kinds of things. And, um, and, uh, and then I was listening to later that evening, Ricky Lee Jones singing All The Way. And I thought, God, what a great song that is. When somebody loves you it's no lo- it's no good unless they love you all the way. Isn't that great? Mm. Isn't that is. just a beautiful a beautiful beautiful song. And uh, you know and done by Ricky Lee Jones it's uh, it's additionally beautiful. It's um, it's a really good record really Ricky Lee Jones. That's my pick to click. <laughs> Ricky Lee Jones pieces of treasure yes I mean, doing songs are about 100 years
1: old. hot new pop music <laughs> our recommendations the word podcast prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week one of the very earliest records that i can remember hearing i uh, must have been about nine i suppose at the time um when it came out and thinking this is foreign uh really for really different really unusual apart from uh, My Boy Lollipop, which I felt the same about, was The Girl from Ipanema. I really remember that coming out. Was it 1964? And being such a huge hit and everybody singing it and just being so exotic and so different, you know. And Astrid Gilberto, who uh, died uh, last week, story of that is interesting, isn't it? Because she recorded... I think I think uh, Stan Getz and her husband, whose name I don't think I could pronounce, but I think it's Joao Joao uh, 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 Gilberto. Joao jo- jo Gilberto, jo- jo Gilber- Gilberto. Um, had decided that they wanted to put in a, a you know a, 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 to just they really like the song "Girl from Ipanema," and they wanted an English version and they wanted English lyrics. And so they and she was a singer, and she offered to sing them, and she was sang it, and she got paid hundred and twenty dollars session fee. And then there was that kind of issue that it all got very complicated. She fell out with her husband she straight had away. An affair, I think had an affair with Stan Getz actually briefly yeah, while on tour. Yeah. So I think relations with both of them were pretty ragged. But but there was a certain amount of. Um, argument about whether or not she should have deserved more, because it was a massive, massive incident Incidentally, the lyrics of that song, Dave, tall and tan and young and lovely. lovely, the girl from Ipanema goes walking, and when she passes, each one she passes goes, ah. Ah. Uh,
0: that's so really. Find me a song line that where the line finishes with the word ah, just it's like that. The, Not a goes, prolonged ah, ah just to go. Ah, yeah. I must. There's a bit of detail here actually. You know, this was a session. It was it was Yaojia Berto as Dan Gets. It was produced by Creed Taylor. It was done in New Jersey, I think. And and she was there as Gilberto's wife, and they they thought good idea to have. Part of, you know because it part of the lyric in in English and she translated it and, and then did this and so the original version is is her husband singing at first and then she comes in later with the same verse same verse in English. but the version that came but out they did, they re-did as a single, they? no yep. they didn't redo it basically the original version is five minutes something. her version, which just starts with the English, it's two minutes 30. Oh, they edited
1: it out. No, oh, so it's true. just,
0: it's chopped out the original. Oh, so it's okay. one recording, yeah. but her bit of it became the hit. And as you say, became became an absolutely enormous kind of life-defining hit, you know. And I suppose it was just, it was that whole idea of, it sold the idea of Brazil, didn't it, really? Yeah. To, you know, it's the it it made Ipanema famous. It never never mind, actually, it real bad.
1: Good. I'm sure it, it put it on the map as a tourist location and everything. And it it still is, it. Yeah. still
0: is to this day. You know that that um, you know, my son spent a couple of years living and working out there, and he said Brazilian beach culture is like nowhere else on earth. <laughs> you know, the Brazilians go to the beach for the whole day, you know what I mean? That's that's their whole social objective. And the young women there are tall and tender, young and lovely. You know, it's as if they're all living up to the expectations set by Astrid Gilberto in 1964, you know. So, yeah, and um, she, she quite, probably quite rightly, never felt that she got paid sufficiently for the record. But then again... The record made her immensely famous.
1: That's the thing, isn't it? Her hundred and twenty dollars. Without that, she wouldn't have had a lifelong career. I mean, mm. it's, it's an extraordinary. Story. I mean, all these, all these. There are so many complicated stories about non-payment of money, and it made me think of the one that's been um, been all over social media this week. Huge story, the one about like Primal Scream, which we've both been following, haven't we? And I mean, that is t- 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 just should we recap very quickly? Yeah, go on. Well, you might you, have you. missed it. You know more than Martin I do, Martin Duffy, can't. who was the keyboard player of, of Primal Screen for about thirty years, died last uh, December in really terrible circumstances. Actually, fell uh, in his house and uh, died of a brain injury. Actually, and his son Louis Duffy, who's nineteen now, had submitted a, a long document uh, at an inquest uh, for his dad's death last week. And with a very, very unaggressive and very sweet-natured tone about it, which makes it even more hard-hitting and impactful, I think. But in it, he, he basically explains that Martin, his dad, joined the group 30 years ago, um, was originally a big part of... The, was officially a part of the band. He had songwriting credits on the first two albums, I think. Um, and then was cut out by the by Primal Scream, who effectively are Andrew Innes and Bobby Gillespie, was cut out of all the further songwriting credits and the touring and the merchandise profits and eventually just paid per gig now we don't understand the circumstances that went on here but that's what happened and therefore his only income was playing live with primal screen and during lockdown of course there was no chance to make any money and life got very tough he got into financial difficulties and he had a terrible illness and he had a a prostate cancer operation and and eventually, and started drinking very heavily. And his son said he was, you know, he was a functioning alcoholic. And then on stage, I think a couple of times, just really, really kind of just, just couldn't hold it together. I was called in by Bobby Gillespie and Andrew Innocent and was, and, was, and was dismissed from the group. And, of course, there are lots of complications. Bobby Gillespie had said in his memoir that everybody in the band was on equal wages, even the tambourine player. We were totally socialist about it. But actually, the tambourine player in in Nice Tassel's book, the C86 book, says uh, that actually he was on £50 a week and he wasn't very socialist at all. And Primal Scream had sold half their song catalogue for £5 million, um, you know, uh, I think a couple of years ago. So I think Martin Duffy's thing was, you know, that he he got into this terrible situation. He got into this drinking and his financial problems, you know, and felt that he was owed some kind of money and the band could have either loaned him the money to get him out of this problem he was in, or they could have just uh, you know, given him the money. They could have somehow been more supportive and that they were, you know, ruthless and mean-spirited. And, and it's, it's, I mean, they come out really, really badly, haven't they? I mean, don't you think? Well, like, just, it's, it's, very, just it's, taken... it's very difficult, isn't it?
0: Because, you know, my, my, my feeling is that any band... That's been around for as long as that. <laughs> we we are now at a stage in the history of popular music where even primal scream have been together, you know, far longer than yeah. bands ever used to be together, you know. So let you know, and they're nothing compared to I don't know Led Zeppelin or the Shadows yeah. or whatever. He probably still have some kind of um, being nowadays. And and what you do know about bands they all have long complicated histories where business relationships are overlaid with personal relationships people's personal problems and what you do know for sure is that compared to most people's employment history there is no paper trail you can go back to. You can't go and get that file out of a you know no, there was out no of a contractual agreement and, and go yeah. on the third of the, of March nineteen, you know, whatever, ninety-eight, you we offered you this and you said no or whatever. I don't know. So there, you know, finding out the truth of this stuff is is a nightmare. And I think the thing that's really struck me about this this week was people the the readiness of people on social media who know less about it than i do to leap in and say oh it's
1: this is this is what i've always thought about yeah, however yeah the basic the basic yeah. headline is you know, ha, I always thought he was a wanker and this yeah. proves that I was right all along and you <laughs> tossers have never listened to me and now I've been proved right, you know. And it's all based on one story, which is complicated and there are presumably that sounds to immensely sympathetic And
0: also, and I'll tell you what I was thinking, you know, I mean, you know, neither of us have got a 19-year-old son. They're all older, you know, but even now, even in their 30s and whatever, how much do your sons... Know about your working history. I would get a venture not hardly, much. Anything, hardly not anything not much at all. Um, that's not. no interest at all whatever. Had it been the same with my son? So the idea that with, with the best one in the world, that the 19-year-old son and it's a very articulate you know piece of evidence and so forth, he' you know, very restrained and so forth, but he can't have known the whole story.
1: It can't can't uh, be and you, from a their point of view, can't
0: know the whole story.
1: Yeah, from their point of view, you know, it must be—it's really must be really difficult. You know, having someone an alcoholic in the band who's unreliable, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you can see his point of view that they were—they oh, yeah. were, you know, incredibly uncharitable. You're so right. I was looking at the—I um, was looking at some of those Twitter things last night. It's a medieval bloodlust, isn't it? Was one link, and just scribbled out a few of the phrases, and people were just firing off, going, "Pound shop, Mick Jagger." Always a charlatan, talentless exploiter of genuine musicians. <laughs> genuine musician, <coughs> terrible singer. I stood next to him at a cafe queue once, and he was horrible to the staff. There primal shame, primal scam. He gives smackheads a bad name. <laughs> Champagne socialist who sent his kids to private school. You know, it's just everybody's got in there and given regard. Actually, I mean I think it will have some impact on the reputation of Bobby Gillespie. And that's fair yes, enough. It you will. Know. He probably I'm sure he deserves it to some extent. Well we Bobby don't
0: himself. we just don't
1: we don't know. We do none not of,
0: know do we? none of us know at no. all. You know, you know, do you do you know do you know what's going on in the family down the street? No. No. Therefore, you probably don't know what's going on in Primal Screen or or any. Just just because you've you know, you've got some of these these bands records or whatever and you've yeah. read a few interviews doesn't mean you know what's going on. And and they, all the you know, bands if they've been going 30 years, they've
1: got really complicated this. Yeah, and also you're under some e- obligation if you're going for 30 years, you're under obligation for the sake of the audience really to keep as many of those band members on the books, they were in the lineup as possible because it matters to people, obviously. And, uh, and so you're, you're, you're obliged to, I mean, this happened with Lowell Tolhurst in the Cure, do you remember? Very much the same sort of story. Oh, yes, yes. And they, they just all ended in terrible, terrible tears, you know, and uh, you know, the audience wanted to see him and they just couldn't deal with him anymore. And uh, another interesting thing about the, the 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 story, I thought, was that was that uh, that Martin Duffy had said that they only started making any real money. That was on the, the thing. Twen- oh, I think it was the twentieth anniversary tour and of Scream Delica. I thought that was really interesting. Actually, you see, Ziggy, I
0: think this is this is my theory. I think nowadays, I think you're bigger when you're past it than you are when you're hot. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it just the way it works. Now, I know this doesn't extend to kind of Taylor Swift and Harry Styles or whatever, who are clearly very, very hot right now and are yeah. unlikely to be any hotter. But, you know, it certainly, a, it certainly applies to the primal screams and cures of this world or or the Pixies or name any band you want, you know, because they can go out touring 20 years later in front of an audience who, you know, when when you... It, if you were, if you were a seventeen-year-old Primal Scream fan, in, you know, back in C eighty-six land, you know, because as you say, a lot of this was covered in Nigel Dassel's excellent yeah, well, yeah. book about whatever happened. To, what's it called? Whatever happened to the C eighty-six kids? Is that what it's called? Yeah, I think it's, it's, yeah. it is. Yeah, um, you know, that was a big thing. You know, so if you were a fan of Primal Scream back in the day, whenever the day was you would have directed
1: 9293 that record i think okay yeah. you
0: would have directed this amount of money to them not a lot okay if you're still a fan of them now, you will be directing huge sums of money towards them because to go and see them will cost you quite a lot of money. Yeah, and all know.
1: the people who bought it, actually it was 91, Screaming Telegraph came out, but all the people who bought it then would want to go, possibly. And, yeah, and, and then you've and, got, I don't know, the best part of I, 30 years' worth of people who've heard that record and understand they're quite an important part of the whole development of that kind of music. And they want to go too, and so they're just they're going to be enormous. That's where all the money is, and in the merchandise. But you know what what the, it's, you can never tell with those records how much involvement it was, was, oh. was the producers actually but You see, but that's
0: just, the thing I want to ask you, Mark Allen, because you'd know more about this because you're probably working on this on Select under that bang in the day. You know, because I've got a copy, cream of Delica. And you know, and I listened to it and I think, who did this?
1: Who made this record? It's got Bobby Gillespie singing on it, but beyond it, that, it might be another. It might be another Frankie Goes to Hollywood situation, might
0: it? Because well, it, it's Andrew Weatherall, isn't it? The yeah. kind of DJ or, or whatever, and then it was Jimmy Miller who produced That's Traffic right. and the Rolling Stones, yeah. and so forth. Yeah. And it's it's mainly kind of uh, you know fabulous-voiced session singers, isn't it? You know, it is. doing doing ringing choruses and so yeah. forth, and of course that Bobby stuff. V-
1: Unless vocal comes in, it's actually quite disappointing. <laughs> not not one of the world's strongest singers, it's let's be not honest. Not really. Uh,
0: <coughs> not to come in after, I don't know, P.P. P. Arnold, whoever yeah. it is. And, um, and of course, the other thing that I was talking to somebody about this yesterday, that uh, that's the kind of record, you know, moving on up and all that stuff, that really has a rich afterlife, doesn't it? It's the kind of thing that pops up in... In the Olympic Games, or you know, it's on adverts, or you know, it's continuity. It's instantly, it evokes, you know, it it evokes something that is more than just primal scream, isn't it? Doesn't it? And you know, so that must be that must be very valuable all these years since. Oh, I'm sure
1: it's worth a lot of money, and I think. Bobby Gillespie's main main uh, uh, importance of the whole thing is representing the concept the brand the identity uh, of of Primal Scream itself. Don't you think it's just that that's that's what you that's what somehow the music stands for the attitude of Bobby Gillespie which is kind awesome. of hard to quantify. But no, I mean yeah. oh, it's an amazing it was an amazing story and I think uh, And it's also, as you say, extraordinary just how quickly these things just accelerate. And Primal Scream went from kind of naught to 60 of uh, (laughs) getting absolutely walloped. uh,
0: Strangely enough, in the same week that they got a new album out, haven't they? Which had got. I think so. Terrible reviews. Yeah, actually. it did. It did. So Quantick think... was
1: a brilliant tweet from David Quantick. He said to Primal Scream are going from bad people Twitter to I never liked their records Twitter in naught to 60. We are 10 <laughs> minutes away from one of Jesus Jones was rude to me in Asda Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You I just piling in. Get the, I always said they were shit. Nobody me, believed me. No, look. It's like what we were
0: saying, weren't we, the other week that, you know, people talk about the press being vile and, you know, vengeful and inaccurate and and spiteful. They are nothing compared to the public. Nothing compared to the public. The public, when given social media as a tool to pile in on whoever it is. A
1: vicious conjecture about people that they would almost certainly have never met and knew absolutely nothing of any certainty about. They're all
0: just absolutely delighted to do it, you know? know. And they're all kind of, you know, they they post their 140 characters or whatever, and then they step away from the... Uh, from the keyboard, you know, dusting off. Now that's
1: that's sorted it. That's sorted it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. My work is done. <laughs> Bobby Gillespie the... will never work again. <laughs> yeah. Bobby Gillespie oh, stays
0: under the duvet and doesn't get up that morning. Oh dear! Oh dear! Oh,
1: there must be a lot of bands with the same sort of situations, Actually, just just you know, they're stuck with some member who's always been problematic and. It's a marriage, isn't it? It's a complicated marriage. You know? It's a complicated marriage. And um, and also and, there are people who's, who's, you know, the different levels. of The people who write the songs are making large amounts of money all uh-huh. the time. There are some people who are only getting paid per gig. I'm not saying it's the same for the E Street Band, because obviously they'd be hugely well rewarded. But still, if you're an E Street Band member, you're waiting for a call telling you they're going to be employed from 2022 to 2023, and then maybe not again for another two years or whatever. Oh, absolutely, and
0: uh, yeah, I don't think I don't think it's simple, even with the E Street Band. You know, I think there have been times when they wanted when they wanted more money, or certain 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 members have. And, I'm sure uh, had have probably got it. You know, but um, it's never straightforward. It must be really odd, you know. You kind of join a group with somebody when you're about twenty four or something, and none of you mean anything. And then you know, all those years later, you and your extended family are just desperately waiting for a call from that same individual <laughs> who was nobody, yeah. <laughs> who now and now has all the power, the all the power, and it's um, impossible to deal with. Yeah, I, don't, I, I, I'm sure Bruce Springsteen is not impossible to deal with, but um, it it's an odd way to it's an odd way to live, really. But that's 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 the the musician's lot i suppose the
1: word podcast prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week
0: we've been spending a lot of time this week you you and i exchanging messages about nick drake while reading richard morton jack's excellent really good book r- new biography yeah it's nick very it's
1: called nick drake the life and uh we've just done an interview with him and he was he was fantastic, actually. He was Very really funny. good. Really he had amazing good. turns of phrase. Did you notice that? I was just thinking back on it. There was a bit where he was talking about what Nick Drake was like. And he said a lot of people thought he was like a, a, a kind of intimidating raven perched upon a bookshelf in the corner of the room. I thought, what a brilliant phrase just thrown in there. So funny. Yeah.
0: I think, it didn't we talk about university? We were talking about the 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 strange circumstances of Nick Drake ending up going to Cambridge, which he never really wanted to go to. Yeah. And he wasn't really academically qualified to go there. He said, you know, I think he said his qualifications wouldn't get him into any university, whether it was formally World of Leather University. That's right, formally World of Leather. <laughs> so good. Um but anyway, oh, I found it absolutely fascinating um, because it's a really odd thing. It's a big, fake book yeah. about somebody who had a very short life. You know, let's not forget. A very short professional and life. I mean, incredibly short professional life. But it's because of those three records that, that people end up writing big, fake books about them. And the key thing is that later. he tracked down, didn't he,
1: 200, over 200 people who, who met him? and knew him writes it down to the girl who plays cello on cello song to a guy who wrote a poem about him in a school magazine. And they've all got something interesting to say, actually. It's, a,
0: it's an extraordinary thing because there's this character, and if they knew him at, at Cambridge or you know, in the folk scene or whatever, they, they knew he was exceptionally talented. And there was kind of an expectation he was going to make it in some way or another he didn't and uh, and and then he died not long after and so these people in their 50s 60s and 70s are having to search their memory go way back you know to this guy that i met a couple of times at a party in in london in 1971 or something like that and thinking and they're all thinking did i miss something and and all the people he knew because he was not very communicative, and he used to just turn up and he would sit there and not say an awful lot. All pe- all the people who knew him used to feel that his his real life must have been elsewhere. That they didn't really know his real life. It must be yeah. They thought place. some
1: some huge thing was going on. They were just on the edge of it. Actually, this now, was his real. This, life. Was, this was it. This was entirely it. This was it. He
0: sat there waiting for something to happen that never really happened. And he didn't do what most musicians would have done in his shoes, which was to just be frantically active. You do do gigs, do this, that, just be and
1: self-promotional.
0: And he didn't do that. And that's tell you the thing we didn't actually talk about with, uh, with Richard and you and I haven't really talked about it. And I still, I'm not querying anything in the book because I think it's a fantastic book. But, the story that that he was booked to appear on The Whistle Test when Pink Moon came out, and they turned up to pick him up, didn't they? And he just said, no, I'm not going.
1: Not Which,
0: and when you think that, and we often, I often compare him, say there's Nick Drake, there's Richard Thompson, there was John Martin, all three exceptional talents, all came along at the same time, all fabulous guitarists. A year later, John Martin got that call to go on the whistle, whistle test, played May You Never, and it trans- completely made his career. And so who's to say that if Nick Drake had, had turned up, that the same thing wouldn't have happened? I don't know whether I, I, I mean, it, it may be that he was booked, but, you know, normally the bookings for whistle tests were published in Radio Times. And, um, but it's, it's
1: an amazing combination uh, of terrible luck you know, that uh, I'd forgotten that the first album, Five News Left, came out pretty much the day Brian Jones died. Yeah, yeah. And the day, obviously, three or four days later, it was the Hyde Park concert, Stone's uh, concert, and Memorial. And the music press was completely looking in that direction. I think the second album coincided, I think, with a postal strike. Well, it was a second
0: album. That went into history. People, if you look on the label the second album, it says published. 1970. It didn't come out in nineteen seventy, came out in nineteen seventy-one, came out in the in the spring of nineteen seventy-one because they waited until well, it was delayed anyway, and then yeah. they waited until after the postal strike. Because the postal strike went out for like three months, I think, at the beginning yeah, of nineteen seventy-one. Um so you know, nothing
1: Nothing worked out perfectly. And then the third album, third album was Bowie had just taken off. And again, music press completely obsessed with that. So that was bad timing. But also, I thought it was interesting. We were talking about this in the podcast that he had none of the basic building bricks the foundations that most people had. There was no real manager. He had Joe Boyd. No. Joe Boyd was fantastically busy producing a series of yeah. phenomenal yeah. records, running a record company, going between America and, and England the whole time. He had the, a label boss, Chris Blackwell, who was you know, kind of distant too and not really that involved. He had no agent. He had no no PR. No PR. <laughs> At one the point, there's a PR. It's incredible. The PR offers him an interview with Melody Maker, with Chris Welsh, and he turns it down because he just doesn't want to do it. She's insane. Yeah. and yet does do an interview with jackie you know so he was getting the wrong kind of advice and 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 also he was uniquely ill suited i think um how did richard describe him? he said he had a personality that was yeah there was a, a uniquely ill equipped for 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 display that's right it was a brilliant yeah. phrase and he was just absolutely You know, had no experience, had no idea about self-promotion. When he played gigs, and the gigs he played were private parties, ski chalets in Switzerland, uh, bars in France, you know, May Balls at Cambridge University. (laughs) Had none of that real experience. And when he started playing gigs, he didn't get any better. He got worse. He actually got worse, didn't he, you know, in front of rock audiences because he was just used to people approving of and was told by Joe Boyd and by everybody else who was involved with that first record, that it was going to be enormous. And then started to wander around kind of acting as though he already was enormous. So he yeah. already was a big star. So he had everything going against him. It's, oh my God, it's an amazing book.
0: It's a really good book. It's r- highly recommended. Uh, and it, it's it's out now. We we both very much enjoyed it because it, uh, it sends you back to the records. And uh, sends you back to listen to the guitar playing because there's a lot about guitar playing. Richard Thompson, yes, yeah,
1: huge amount. I thought that was really interesting. Joe really Boyd heard him and said, "This guy is better than Bert Jansch. He's better than, uh, yes. He's, um, he's better than uh, yes, he's better than John Renbourn. He's better than Davy Graham. I mean, these people. I'm, this was. Kind of, I was really interested in all that kind of music at the time, and I was, you know, a teenager. I used to listen to that stuff all the time. And to say that to him, to say, tell him he was better than these people, which he may well have been. The other interesting thing is he invented all these tunings, which is another reason why I think I think you never hear that many Nick Drake covers because they're impossible to play I bet nobody knows it's like like Joni Mitchell used really odd tunings There aren't that many cover versions songs apart are part of things like Big Yellow Taxi which are quite conventional but because the tunings are so odd and they're and the jazz chords and they're invented chords you know and now
0: I can't remember who it is that says this uh, John Wood, the great engineer who did all those records I think he says that when he, when he played something and then he played it again it would be completely the same his, yes. his fingering, absolutely, you yeah, yeah. would not be able to tell any difference at all because he had remarkably long fingers, didn't he? And, yeah, and, and really strong. And he he just sat there and and put in absolutely thousands of hours of, you know, disciplining his. Uh, yeah, his
1: hands. and when he went and in and recorded Pink Moon, I think he did. Well, no, actually, it was it was five years left. It, the versions that you hear. I think nearly all of them were first takes.
0: Yeah, they were. Both. He
1: went in and just played it that way. And that, and, and if he'd done another take, it wouldn't probably be identical. Just astonishingly.
0: But the other thing about the book, and which I was talking to Richard about, and I do think it's, if, you, if you're of my vintage, it's particularly powerful. It evokes the London of the late 60s and early 70s, better than any book I've ever read. You know, because it's just the accounts of people who lived in flats and bedsits that wouldn't have had phones. You know, they... Probably didn't have a telly. Certainly didn't have a television. They'd have a record player and and a large record collection.
1: There's some cider and there's some ashtrays.
0: A large record collection worth going across town to visit the owner of would be 20 records. Yeah, 28, you know, and and they might have a couple of imports. And you go, you yeah, somebody's got a Tim Buckley record or whatever. I've heard, or read about him in IT. Let's go over to so and so's house in Highgate and listen to a Tim Buckley record. And, you know, the world wasn't joined up at all. <laughs> you know, you, they were all these people were, were pursuing their. Little enthusiasms in tiny pockets, and it never kind of knitted together. I mean, this is even the early days of Time Out magazine, you know, so you wouldn't have an idea of the scene or anything. No, you, know? not at all. you would just go to certain things.
1: It reminded me of Richard Thompson's biography, too. It's very much the same, yeah. the same age, same vintage, and we've been together on occasions. And uh, it's all about going out of people's houses and, and playing board games. Yeah, board Monopoly. Games. Board games, basically Smokey listen, cigarettes. Listen, and then, and then Richard Thompson's obsessed with this idea that whenever they were travelling in the van, they used to play games to entertain them in the van. Games based on on the number plate of the car in front. Yeah. You had like to work, yeah. use it as an acronym. And you've got to come up two
0: with thing, an expression. Two things, two things. There's a lovely vignette in the book where <laughs> Richard Thompson is quoted in the book. Says people think I'm shy. I'm nothing compared to, and that's true. You know, yeah. he is quite shy. But Nick Drake was way shy. And Nick Drake and Richard Thompson blunders onto Hampstead Tube Station one one afternoon in like 1970, and the only other person on the Tube
1: Station is Nick Drake. <laughs> this. Is they have to sit together. They sit together. And they have this and conversation talk
0: about, about Debussy or something. Yeah, and, that,
1: and, and Rich Tom says it's just agony. He can't <laughs> keep a conversation going. Think these are two people with the most in common in the world, yet they, they can't <laughs> talk to each other. They're competitive and shy, and uh, you know, just wound up in themselves. The and other he, thing, he can't are, wait to get off the train. He the, he is, keep the conversation go. The other thing, are, a lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend.
0: I wanted to say, talking about the board games, is it's really quite significant. If you, I think in Mick Sandy Denny uh, biography, they talk about this. They used to, they used to live near Palm, Parsons Green. Uh, Sandy Denny and Trevor Lucas, and they would play board games. What they would do, of an evening, play board games. And you want to know why Bruce Springsteen got the name of The Boss? You want to know? It's because they used to play Monopoly. Yeah. E Street Band used to play Monopoly. Because yeah. that's what... They had no money. <laughs> you know, yeah. Nobody had any money at all. You can go out and have a few drinks or nobody could afford it. They would sit there in their tiny little flats, either in New Jersey or Haverstock Hill that's it, wherever, you know, in between gigs, and they wouldn't have that many gigs, and they'd play bloody board games. You try telling the youth of today that, Mark... <laughs> And they won't believe you. The word
1: podcast, two cocoa tins, and a piece of string.
0: So, what else has been happening in the
1: world of word in your ear? Well, we've we're, we're still the... we're
0: still basking in the in the glory of word in the park uh, last last weekend, and uh, we started putting out the um, recordings of our chats with. Should we uh, put the Leslie guess, and Jazz on that.
1: We got one about Bob Stanley talking about the uh, Bob Stanley on the Bee Gees. We've got John Higgs talking about uh, the Beatles and, and Bond. And we have Claire Grogan talking about, with tears and laughter, <laughs> Claire <laughs> Grogan on very good form. Very know, good. Large glass of rose before she went on stage. <laughs> she did. She's got quite lit up. It's very, very funny. <laughs> she did. So uh, all of those are coming out. As I say, Leslie ann Jones, one of the stones is out already, which is, has some hair-curling moments. Yeah, my yeah, God, yeah. the stuff about the naked Yoko Ono wandering around Chateau nelcott uh, <laughs> I can't get it out of my head, but anyway um yeah, all that all that oh, I'll be out with you very shortly.
0: all that's there yes, please uh, you know um if you're you, wherever you're listening to this or watching it or whatever uh please uh, like, recommend, subscribe, all those other things you can do probably on the on the dashboard in front of you. Those things we really value. Those things because they, they they do definitely help, and uh, and uh, you know we'll be back with the usual usual stuff in due course. If you haven't taken part in the Friday night quiz, please do so. Welcome aboard. You don't have to be. You know, if you're worried that you might not come up to scratch, that really doesn't matter at all. And also, you can just turn up and just sit and watch, observe, sit and watch. You know, if you don't want to take part, nobody's going to, you know, demand you um, step out of the audience and, you know, and assist the conjurer with a trick. (laughs) You're not going to have to do anything of that kind. You know, it's all, it's all completely a safe space, as I think we've said, isn't it, Mark? It is. In fact, We invented the safe space. Here it is. This podcast was brought to you by the Word.